Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Judges, chapter 16. Judges, chapter 16. Hear now the word of our God. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and what, by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will give you eleven hundred pieces of silver each. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound, that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart, and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man." When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and he, she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks on his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him, and she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. 
Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, Our god has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about three thousand men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with his, all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel twenty years. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as we've gone through the book of Judges, we've been seeing how the, the literary structure of the book is collapsing. Well, <laughs> with the temple of Dagon, it has collapsed. Remember back in Judges 2, there was the basic literary structure of the whole book. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God allowed their enemies to conquer and oppress them. Then the people cried out for relief, and the Lord sent a judge to deliver them. Then the land had rest until the death of the judge, and then the pattern starts all over again. With each judge, a part of that literary structure has dropped out. By the time we get to Samson, all that is left is... The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, chapter 13, verse 1. And the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines, chapter 13, verse 1. The people do not cry out for relief. The only one who cries out in the whole Samson narrative is Samson. For that matter, the Lord does not send a judge to deliver them. Rather, he says that Samson will begin to deliver them. And the land has no rest. Samson judges Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines while the oppression continues. So the literary pattern has disintegrated, but in a way that makes it clear that this is done on purpose. This is not a mediocre author who doesn't know how to write a book. Where the pattern disintegrates it does so in ways that calls attention to the disintegration. Israel does not cry out for deliverance, but Samson does twice. Indeed, the literary skill of our author is, he's, he's, he's both clear in certain ways and really nuanced with lots of little fun stuff in the, in the meantime. And so actually last week I missed one of those really fun connections and I got to say thanks to the leadership training team because they were the ones that helped me see this. But remember Samson's little trick with the foxes? He catches 300 foxes or jackals 
and ties torches between their tails and sets them to run through the standing grain in the olive orchards. 300 jackals with torches. Where else have we seen a judge setting forth against God's enemies with 300 soldiers, each of them bearing torches? Gideon. Oh, and by the way, how did Gideon know which 300 to take? They were the one who lapped water like dogs. Why was that little feature commented on back then? Because when the judge runs out of warriors, when Israel will not fight, Samson must find his warriors among the dogs, among the jackals. The literary disintegration of the book shows us the disintegration of Israel, that everything has... Israel is now down to one man. Israel is now down to one who will fight against the enemies of his people. As we look at chapter 16, where are you in the story? Who do you identify with? In the story of Samson, sort of just think about that as we, as we look through the various characters in the story, where do we find ourselves? Samson goes to Gaza and he sees a prostitute. He's, many questions emerge from this text. Why does Samson go to Gaza? This is the furthest south of all the Philistine cities. It's furthest away from his home. He doesn't appear to be out sort of doing anything particularly useful. He's a prostitute. Uh, why does Samson get up at midnight? Does he know that there's an ambush? And why do the Philistines not seem to notice that Samson is leaving, carrying the city gate on his shoulder, no, no less? And for that matter, why does Samson carry the gate to Hebron 40 miles away? None of these questions are answered directly in our text. Our author provides no interpretive gloss at all. There's no reference to the Spirit of the Lord. There's no comment as to what God's doing here. But part of this is because by now, some of these things should become clear. Samson's in Gaza because he's drawn to Philistine women, and he is wandering further and further from home to fulfill his lusts. But that's not the only reason why Samson is in Gaza. Samson's personal reason for being in Gaza does not appear to have been an honorable one. But God's reason for him being in Gaza is to foreshadow what's coming. Where does Samson die? In Gaza. But then he carries the gates of Gaza to Hebron, foreshadowing the connection to David, who will reign in Hebron for seven years before he builds Jerusalem. Gaza may, for a time, triumph over Samson, but the gates of Gaza will fall before David, the one who finishes what Samson starts. But still, why do the Gazites fail to notice that Samson is walking off with their city gates? Who says they failed to notice? There are commentators who think, oh, they were all asleep. They, were, you know, sort of, they all thought, well, you know, the gate's locked. He can't get out, so we'll just, you know, we'll just wait for morning. That's not what the text says. I mean, sure, they say we'll, we'll arrest him in the morning, but that doesn't mean that nobody saw him. No doubt. As they see him approaching the city gate, they grip their weapons. They're like, oh, wait, here he comes. We should get ready. But rather than try to unlock the gate, rather than try to sort of... Do, 
Samson just lifts up the city gate. Now, this isn't just some little door passageway. This is the city gate that wagons come through. uh, Your army will will go out through. This is a major piece. This is a major thing. And he's not just picking up the doors. It says it picks up the post, the bar. This is this. This is not something that any mortal man could possibly do with anything approaching ordinary strength. So he picks up the gates, the two posts, pulls them up, bar and all, puts them on his shoulders, and carries them 40 miles to Hebron. Now, maybe nowadays people would say, oh, he's trying to carry the city gates away. Let's go get him. But in those days, they believed in things like a divine power. And when they see... I mean, remember, remember what Samson did with, with, with an ass's dentures? He killed a thousand men with a donkey's jawbone? Just imagine what this guy could do with city gates. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry, this is not someone I'm going to attack. This is why I said last time, we really shouldn't be thinking of Samson as some burly, muscle-bound, strong man. He's not doing things that ordinary people can do. He could be some, he could look like some ordinary weakling, but he's actually got the strength of the spirit, which they don't want to touch him. And this explanation of the reaction of the Gazites is confirmed in verse 5. The lords of the Philistines are not going to try to attack Samson. Direct attack doesn't work. A thousand men died the last time they tried that. Ambushes don't work. Uh, Their men are too terrified to attack Samson, and he seems to know they're there. So they decide the only method that seems to work against Samson is blackmail or bribery on the women in order to get Samson to reveal his secrets. Not that that ended all that well last time, but we could try it again. And after this, he loved. Now, this is... In the case of the Timnite woman, Samson saw. In the case of the Gazite woman, Samson saw. But with Delilah, we're told that Samson loved. It's tempting to say this is an improvement. He's not just following his eyes, he's following his heart. Well, his heart is as misguided as his eyes. He entrusts himself to a woman who is not trustworthy. But interestingly, Delilah is the only woman named in the Samson narrative. Not his mother, not his wife, not the prostitute, but Delilah, which may mean flirtatious one or of the night. Either way, not all that promising. Now, who who was this Delilah? Some think she was a Philistine, some think she was an Israelite. She lived in the valley of Sorek, which would include both Philistines and Israelites, so that doesn't help. But the, the contrast is clear. Samson had just been up uh, on the hill in front of Hebron, but he will not remain on the heights. He will go down once again into lands at least dominated by the Philistines, whether she's an Israelite or a Philistine herself. Now, the lords of the Philistines refer to the rulers of the five cities of the Philistines. Uh, there's, there's five of them, and they offer 1,100 shekels of silver apiece in order to learn the secret of his strength. Samson has become public enemy number one, so they offer an exorbitant prize. 
But just think, 30 shekels of silver would be the price of a slave in Exodus 21. Abraham would purchase a burial plot for 400 shekels of silver, which was far more than the land was worth. 5,500 shekels of silver is an extravagant amount of money. 1,100 shekels of silver from each of the lords of the Philistines. But then again, Samson is an extravagant problem. And so they go to extravagant lengths. Now, the betrayal of Samson points us in contrasting ways to the betrayal of Jesus. Here, you know, with Jesus, the deliverer of Israel is betrayed by a kiss. Here, however, it is the kiss of a woman. There, it would be one of his disciples. The betrayer is lured by the clink of silver. Here, it is a royal ransom. With Jesus, it would be the price of a slave. Three times, Delilah coaxes and wheedles to try to get Samson to tell her the secret of his strength. And in each episode, Samson is, is toying with Delilah. But with each episode, he moves one step closer to revealing the truth. Three times, he lies, telling her that the secret is that he must be tied with fresh bowstrings, maybe with new ropes, or my hair must be woven together. That's starting to get near the truth. Each time she has Philistine soldiers lying in ambush, but they never reveal their presence. So as far as Samson knows, this is just a game. It's, let's, let's play the game. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. <laughs> this man is both extraordinarily powerful and extraordinarily stupid. In his love for this woman, he has become blind to what's going on around him. Once again, the coaxing and wheedling are too much for Samson. This has worked before, it works again. How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? Like his Timnite wife, Delilah insists that his love for her depends on the truth. Not a bad statement, actually. The problem is, isn't that... I mean, the problem is that Samson's loving the wrong people, that he's trusting the wrong people. His wife had sought the answer to his riddle. Delilah now seeks the answer to the riddle that is Samson himself. If you love me, then tell me your inmost heart. The problem is not that Samson tells the woman he loves about his secret. There's no requirement of secrecy about a Nazarite vow. Indeed, that should be, it should be open. The problem is that Samson loves the wrong woman. And so she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him until his soul was vexed to death. <laughs> An apt way of saying it. And so he reveals all his heart to her. And he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become as weak and, become, and be like any other man. He had violated all the other parts of his Nazarite vow, only one was left. And now he jeopardizes his calling all because of a misplaced love. But Delilah sees that he has told her all his heart. The lords of the Philistines had asked her to seduce him and see where his great strength lies. Now she sees. And when Delilah sees, she calls the lords of the Philistines saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Now they come with their money, and Delilah has Samson sleep on her knees. And once again, Samson's riddle comes true. What is stronger than a lion? Samson. What is sweeter than honey? 
a woman who turns out to be even stronger than the lion through her sweetness. The most powerful man in Israel's history has proven to be a weakling in the hands of a woman. Once his head is shaved, Delilah begins to torment him. It's the same word she had used in verse 6. How might you be bound so that one could torment you? Now she torments him. She had been upfront with her agenda. She's been truthful. He is subdued and his strength left him. Some have wondered how he could sleep through all these episodes, whether being tied up, having his hair woven, having his hair cut. Some wonder, yeah, did God put him to sleep? What? The text doesn't try to answer that question. The point is that Samson is profoundly unafraid. He sleeps soundly because he'd always woken up in time. Who cares what is going on around me? The Lord is with me, right? God gives to his beloved sleep. He sleeps secure because he has no fear in the world. When Delilah again wakes him saying, The Philistines are upon you. He said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. This is the third time in the story of Samson that somebody did not know something. Manoah did not know that the one who had spoken to him and his wife was the angel of the Lord. Manoah also did not know that Samson's pursuit of the Timnite woman was from the Lord. And now Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. There is a problem in Israel. Israel does not know. Israel does not understand the Lord's ways and just as Manoah did not know, so now his son does not know. Yes, it was by his own folly that the Lord had left him. But while foolish in so many ways, Samson here reveals what is to happen to our Lord. We hear in Samson the anguished cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Seized by his enemies, bound in shackles, humbled and humiliated, the one who was to deliver Israel is brought low. The way of deliverance is the way of the cross, the way of suffering, the way of weakness. And in Samson's weakness, the power of God is revealed. Humiliation must precede exaltation. And Samson is humbled. His eyes are gouged out. Ever thought about the fittingness of this punishment? He was one who did what was right in his own eyes. And now, as his eyes have led him to this pass that he keeps, he sees and he sees and he does, he sees and he does, now his eyes are gouged out. Once again, Samson is the embodiment of Israel. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God had warned them of the result of this attitude. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 28, God had told them, If you do not obey my voice, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. Samson represents his people. The covenant curse has come upon the deliverer. And even so, it will come upon the nation. Like Samson, Israel will be seized, blinded, exiled, imprisoned, humiliated with forced labor. But that's not the end of the story. Because once again, the hair of his head began to grow after it had been shaved. 
Why should this matter? He had broken the last remnant of his Nazarite vow. Why does it matter that his hair is regrowing again? It's not that he has magic hair. But the promise of God was connected to his hair. And to understand this, we must turn to the final episode in our story. Samson has been transferred to Gaza. Huh, right where the chapter started. The southernmost city in Philistia, perhaps to move him as far away as possible from any that might try to rescue him. And there they have a great feast, a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, to rejoice over the capture of Samson. And they claim that our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. They claim that it's Dagon, their God, who has given Samson into their hand. And the Lord will not be mocked. It was not Dagon. It was Yahweh who gave Samson into their hand. And in the midst of the worship of Dagon and their celebration over Samson's demise, they call Samson to entertain them. The now blinded and nearly bald Samson is led out to entertain the people. And he asks to be led to the pillars so that he may lean against them. Some commentators point to the self-centered focus of Samson's prayer. Oh, Lord Yahweh, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Sure, Samson remains a flawed redeemer. There is no sinless savior until you get to Jesus. But do not dismiss the prayer of this humbled deliverer. He knew his death was near him. The Philistines were not going to keep him around forever. And he knew that having broken the last requirement of his Nazarite vow, his days as a judge in Israel are over. In his life, God had used his folly to begin to save his people from the Philistines. And now, possibly for the first time in his life, he acts by faith. He has no promise that God will hear his prayer. When the, in a sense, when the Spirit had rushed upon him, he was acting you know, impelled by the Spirit, impelled by the presence of God himself with him. That presence has left him. Samson has no promise. He certainly has no rushing of the Spirit. The Spirit's not mentioned here. Indeed, the most likely outcome of what he does next is that the Philistines will see him pushing in vain on the pillars and laugh and mock him for thinking that he could push them over. What a foolish man. Hebrews 11, 32-34 tells us that by faith the judges and prophets conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Samson had stopped the mouth of a lion. He had become mighty in war. He had put foreign armies to flight. And in some sense that was by faith. But the premier act of faith in Samson's life was when he was made strong out of weakness. Would God hear the prayer of this miserable failure of a judge? Would God listen to the cry of a man who had been called to be the deliverer of his people, but who had spent his whole life chasing after foreign women? 
humbled and contrite, Samson now says, let me die with the Philistines. He lays down his life. Yes, with a a certain amount of selfishness and pride, but nonetheless in faith. And through his death, he killed more than he had killed in his life. If you find Samson to be a very odd character and sort of like, like, boy, how can he be considered a hero of faith? I like how one commentator puts it. Perhaps we will eventually get over our surprise at the kind of servants Yahweh delights to use. Because God has a habit of doing this. And it's not just way back then. God very often takes the weak, the foolish, the frail, things, and, and not just... And not just sort of, uh, not just sort of, slightly odd, but really strange. People who are screwed up beyond imagination to do amazing things. That's that's something that God is very good at doing, and we should not be surprised to see it again and again. So, who are you in this story? I hope you're not Delilah, betraying the deliverer of Israel for the wealth of this age. I'm I'm pretty sure you're not Samson, the the bumbling deliverer. I trust you're not the Philistines, unbelieving, uncircumcised, hostile to the God of Israel. (laughs) Who's left? Samson's brothers. Then his brothers and all his family came down to Gaza and took him. And brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol. Wait, Samson had brothers? We were told at the beginning in chapter 13 that, that Manoah and his wife were barren, had no children. Only at the end of the story do we hear that the barren woman had more children. Apparently God had blessed Manoah and his wife with more sons. And these brothers appear only at the end of the story to bury the one who had begun to deliver Israel from the Philistines. During his life, they were hiding in the hills. They would not follow him into battle against the enemies of God. He had to find his warriors among the jackals. But when he died, then they owned him as their brother. Well, Jesus' brothers deserted him too. His disciples, those whom he had just called friends, fled when the Philistines came to crucify him. When the chief priests played the part of the lords of the Philistines and Jesus was called to come and perform for Herod, Pilate, and the priests, no one stood with him. You are the brothers of the Deliverer, abandoned in death, alone and deserted, without any sign from heaven that he was heard. Yet God did not forsake his anointed one, and in his death he destroyed more of his enemies than he ever could have in life. But unlike the brothers of Samson, your elder brother did not remain in the grave. Jesus' strength did not die with him. In his last act of laying down his life, he destroyed not just the lords of the Philistines, but all the powers that held you captive. Sin, death, and the devil have been overthrown, and now you have been set free to live as becomes the children of God. No longer hiding in terror from your enemies, but walking boldly and openly as the people of God, shining brilliantly as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. 
we may march down into the strongholds of the enemy. We may enter into Gaza, the ruined temple of Dagon, not to pick up the the dead body of our elder brother, but to proclaim his triumph over his and our enemies. It is the resurrected, the living Jesus who goes before us, that in his might we proclaim the defeat of the gods of the nations. It's not an accident that in the book of Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant will be captured and God himself will go down into the temple of Dagon when the Lord himself will be taken captive like Samson had been in Gaza. Now the Ark of the Covenant will be taken into the temple of Dagon and God himself will go before his people. What Samson shows us is that even the mightiest warrior in Israel could not deliver his people from their enemies. It must be when the Lord himself goes before us and casts Dagon down on his face. In the book of Samuel, we're told that the statue of Dagon fell on its face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. When God himself goes in, is captured and taken captive into the temple of his enemies, then God himself casts down his enemies and delivers his people. And that's precisely what our Lord Jesus has done. When he became flesh, he joined himself to our humanity. He came down into the temple of... (laughs) They thought it was the temple of the Lord, but they had turned it into the temple of the devil. And our Lord Jesus Christ had accomplished what Samson had pictured in advance before, what David had been a a shadow of, Our Lord Jesus Christ accomplishes. And that's why you and I can have confidence as we walk before the powers of this age because Jesus is raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father. Your king has triumphed. He has won the victory. And you, as his brothers, can announce his victory before all the powers of this age. So let us pray. O Lord God, we thank you and praise you that you have delivered us, that you have, that you have joined us to yourself, that we might no longer be slaves to sin and death, that we might no longer be under the oppression of our enemies. We thank you that Jesus sits at your right hand as the King of kings and Lord of lords, that there is no power on earth or in heaven or anywhere that can stand against us because you have joined us to the life of your Son. And therefore we have confidence that we may walk as your people in triumph because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you for this, your mighty, your mighty act of redemption in your beloved son. And help us to live as his brothers, to live as those who have confidence and joy because Jesus is sitting at your right hand. May we, may we humble ourselves, recognizing that as, as our Lord Jesus has taught us and as Samson has shown us, that that the way, of, the way to glory, the way of triumph is the way of the cross. And so we, though we may endure affliction for Jesus' sake, we, we do not fear because you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us because though we, though we live in the middle of a, of a culture that does not love you and does not know you, yet we know that, that Jesus is Lord. So help us to live boldly and confidently knowing that you will continue the good work that you have begun in, in us. And so help us, Lord, in our homes to, to, to love you and to love one another, to, to pray together and to trust you in all our situations of life, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools. Lord, help us to keep our hearts fixed on Jesus, to, to draw near to you 
together as your people, trusting that you will continue this work until that glorious day. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon him. Help us to keep our ears open to your cry, to your voice, that, that your voice might be the, the one that we hear in all the situations we face. Help us to love the way you have loved, to humble ourselves, knowing that you will exalt us in due time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.